Hi, Scott here. Just a quick thing before we roll into the episode. Just recently, I've put together this little uh, free guide for DIY indie labels that basically takes a lot of the knowledge and wisdom that I've heard from these label owners and managers that I've interviewed through these episodes, I distill some of that information and I put it into this little PDF that you can get by going to otherrecordlabels.com. I think you'll find it really helpful. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. It's a free guide. So make sure you go to otherrecordlabels.com to check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Today is an incredibly exciting episode because it's something very special. First of all, we're talking with the electronic music label Mute from the UK, who have been around for 40 plus years. Mute Records is home to Depeche Mode, New Order, Moby, Goldfrap, Yazoo, some real incredible names. The history of this label is phenomenal. In fact, I first came to know this label, and I would talk about this a couple times in this episode, reading this book about electronic music called Mars by 1980, which has mixed reviews, and it was very, very heavy and, and wordy. Um, but it's a good book. It, it was worth a read. Regardless, they talk a lot um, about Daniel Miller and Mute Records and Daniel's first project, The Normal. There's a huge history that goes back to 1978 with Daniel starting the label, but before that, releasing a double A side uh, under the band name The Normal, playing shows with other punk bands and he was doing it with synthesizers in an era 1978 when synthesizers um, didn't have a great reputation especially in the punk world so we we got this opportunity to talk with mute I, I i emailed them and i got in touch with amy spencer who works there today and we do an interview with her but wait before we do this interview amy was kind enough to help facilitate getting us an interview with the founder of mute daniel miller I got a few minutes on the phone with him just a couple of days ago to ask a few questions about what it was like to start an electronic music label, to start playing electronic music all the way back to 1978 when it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today. It wasn't as loved as some of that music is today or later on. And so this is a really exciting thing to talk with Daniel. And uh, here's a few minutes of my chat with Daniel, and then we chat about what Mute is doing today and some of the legacy of Mute uh, over the past 40 years with Amy Spencer. But right first, here's my interview with Daniel. Um, I uh, I was interested in, and thank you so much for doing this, and I had a great chat with Amy about the, the label and the current state of the label, but at, it was ironic because at the same time that I was, I was chatting with her, I was just finishing up David's book, David Stubbs' book, uh, Mars by 1980, and you were mentioned a couple times in there at the at the beginning with the normal and at the end with Moby, um, but I wanted to ask you um, in David in in David's book um, there was something there was something about how the normal came out of the punk era and uh, but electric electronic music was sort of hated by punks. Why was that? And you were you were attacked on stage by beer bottles. Why was there so much disdain towards your you and, and, and electronic music at that time? Well, I think it comes from two different uh, angles, really. I think when punk started, uh, it was kind of an antidote to progressive music, okay? mm -hmm. progressive rock. Okay, which I was which I also had a, a, a dislike for. So it'd be like and Yes think, and Genesis, is that right? Yeah, that kind of thing. And, sure. You know, yeah, and Rick Wakeman and stuff, ELP and stuff like that. Right. 
it was a kind of reaction to that whole kind of progressive rock thing, which is also quite associated with synthesizers. Right. Yeah. So I think, so I think that was that was part of it. Uh, I think that came more from the musicians and the punks themselves. I think the the kind of people we kind of came across uh, on tour who bottled us or attempted to bottle us off. Nobody actually managed to do it. Um, <laughs> I think they were just, they, they it's a mixture of, you know, um, con, you know, the, they had an idea of what punk was and that's what it should be. Mm. You know, they were waiting, for, they were waiting for stiff little fingers to come on stage. Right. Uh, I mean, we didn't get, it didn't happen everywhere. There was, it was just, a, there were, you know, sometimes we had, we had, we were fairly appreciated depending on where we were playing. We had some nasty moments. But, yeah. And, you know, fueled with alcohol and, you know, probably amphetamines <laughs> and whatever, you know, it's just that we were different. We weren't not a, you know, we were not punks. And, and, uh, and I think we were just different. And suicide had the very same problem when they supported the clash as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I read that in the book as Famously. well. Is yeah. the, is the prevalence of electronic music today and the, and the 40 years of mute is, is the ubiquity of synths and drum machines. Is that vindicating for you at all? Um, in a way it is. Yeah. In a way it's vindicating. I mean, you know, I had a very strong feeling that this was going to be, I mean, of course I didn't invent electronic music. You know, there was some great electronic music going on, which influenced me, inspired me a lot. Sure. But I think, I think that, you know, it did kind of live in a slightly, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, kind of lofty in a kind of a lofty place. Even if, I mean, I'm talking about good stuff as well. Yeah, know? and it wasn't really accessible to people. Mm. And I suppose the generation of electronic musicians that I was part of, you know, you include the Human League, Cabaret Voltaire, Robin Gristle, etc. Yeah, we were all coming from a very different. I mean, I, didn't, I, I don't want to mislead you. I didn't know any of those people, but mm-hmm. you know, but at the time, but um, we were all coming from a very different place. You know. And, we, and, you know, there was that kind of, um, you know, using cheapish, cheap tech, relatively cheap technology, you know, home recording, um, not going to big studios, um, and the whole DIY thing um, was was new for sure. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, I, you know, and, and I, you know, I felt strongly at the time that, you know, I was kind of making a bit of a statement about what it, what, how life, how music could be, I suppose. And that it was, it's not just about those kind of elitist groups. And it's actually something you can do in your bedroom, which of course now, well, not just now, last 15 years has been possible with, you know, software. You yeah. Know, literally everybody's doing it in their, in their, in their bedrooms, you know. So, um, the kind of democratization of it, I, I'm extremely happy about. Well, um, I- yeah. Well, I was so in that in that uh, that story. I, I just picked up your book a, a couple of days ago in preparation for this, and I love it. And I'm I'm not even a, a tenth of the way through it. Um, but I I love the story of how how this iconic electronic music label began. And and you record you know talking about this bedroom musician, you recorded these two songs, TVOD and Warm Leatherette at home. Then you got the artwork made from a friend, and you decided you're going to press 500 copies. What gave you the confidence to do that? And and what would 545s uh, cost someone back? back then well, what gave me the confidence to press for uh, 500 yeah 
for of your first. Well, I didn't have the confidence to press five hundred, <laughs> but that's the minimum that the pressing oh. plant would do. I see. I, had, no, I didn't. Have, I certainly. I didn't think I could sell a single one. You know, oh. but if I was going to press, if I was going to press right. the record, that that was the minimum quantity that the pressing plant would. Uh, would do, you know, so that, okay. that was, that was based purely on that decision. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it worked out okay. In those days, were there an A sides and a B sides as we know them today? Or, or was there one song that you thought was more dominant? Um, well, there, in general, yeah, there were A sides and B sides, of course, but, um, I kind of made mine a sort of double A, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it feels that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. The record went on to sell thousands of copies and effectively launched Mute. If Mute was created, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if Mute was created to fictionally release the normal, then then when things took off for the normal, why did Mute continue, but as you as the normal stopped releasing music? Good question. Uh, one I have been asked before. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I never thought of myself particularly as a musician. Or as a or as a recording artist, should we say? Um, I made that single. I didn't think anything would come of it. I thought I'd just go back to my day job. Um, I did it to make because I, I wanted to know if I could do it. It was more like, a, can I make a record? You know? Yeah. And um, and also to make a little bit of a statement, as we said before, about the possible future of music. You know? Right. Um, and I kind of thought I'd done my job in a way, and. Um, Wow. Then when I started working with other musicians, um, I realized that what I really enjoyed was, was, was actually nurturing other musicians. And it took a lot of pressure off me to have to make records as well. But, yeah. um, but I actually enjoyed working with other musicians in the studio and, and, and you know, and planning, helping to sort of plan their careers and stuff like that. And I want to fast forward 20 years or so. And, 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 and in the book that I was reading about you, and I'm excited to get to it in your book, but I want to, I want to talk about the breakthrough of Moby specifically later in his career with play and how that went down. I mean, this was, what was so special about Moby and why did it take until his third record with you guys to break through? Well, I mean, he broke through hugely with play, but he, he had a very good following before that with Everything Is Wrong. Mm -hmm. And obviously, when, you know, he had his singles, which he released uh, called, you know, especially Go, which was a big hit. Right. Um, and then he made a kind of a sidestep with Animal Rights, which is basically a punk rock record, mm -hmm. um, and which didn't really go down very well with his fans or with anybody in particular. <laughs> But I think it was an important record for him to make at that point. You know, you know, if he hadn't made that record, he may never have made play. Mm. So, I mean, so play. Uh, so he was he was doing well up to the point of animal rights. You know, mm -hmm. um, he was. You know, and he, if you know, who knows? It's, it's impossible to say what would have happened next if he'd made a different kind of record at that time. I couldn't possibly say. Yeah. But um, he 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 was known. He was well known. You know, and. Um, uh, because obviously he was DJing a lot as well. And right. as a DJ, he was extremely successful already. Uh, but play took a long time to get going. You know, we, you know, we all here believe, really believed in the record and the people we worked with really believed in it. But it seemed to take a long time to get off the ground. You know, really, hmm. why does my heart feel so bad was the single that broke through, right. um, in, in Europe anyway. And, um, that was the fourth single from the album that came out. I don't wow. Know, Eight, eight or nine months, I think. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head after the album was released. And the album was kind of ticking along at a lowish level. Um, I remember very clearly that when the Melody Maker, which is no longer with us, mm. uh, reviewed it, 
they, they gave it a full page zero out of ten review. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Which I would think is great. Is great. Yeah, know? that's good um, publicity, I guess. Better than like a like a two inch column five out of ten. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, anyway, but anyway, you know, and and, yeah. and then eventually got picked up on the radio. That track got picked up by Pete Tong on the radio, and he started playing it. And it kind of it from that moment it went very fast, you know, extremely fast. I've heard that Moby was one of the first artists to embrace commercial licensing to film and TV ads. How did that go over with fans and other artists at the time, and how did that decision impact his career? Well, I think it made a lot of difference in exposing the music from for play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we weren't getting any airplay, so he, thought, he he just said, "Well, if we're not getting if we're not getting any airplay, let's find a different way of right. getting to hear it." And, you know, it, it got, it started to get exposure on commercials and it's, it's, you know, the people who pick the music for commercials, they tend to follow the herd. So when one person picks it up, everybody will start, everybody starts picking it up. Right. Right. Um, and so that, that spread quite quickly as well. I mean, uh, and I think a lot of musicians at the time were, you know, disagreed with him. Hmm. Um, I mean, maybe not personally, but you know, just, you know, cause the people up to that point, people were very, um, protective about their music going on commercials um now everybody just wants their music on commercials yeah. <laughs> changed completely yeah. as, a, as a label and a public record music publisher you know yeah oh for sure thing anybody says is how come my i didn't get that apple ad or i didn't get yeah. that vw ad or, or whatever it is you it's know, that so true. Powder ad, you know? yeah that's so true um so you know that's changed a lot and you know he i guess he was part of that change as well change mm. in attitude as well as record sales going down so much, you know, that people had to rely on other sources of income. Well, I can't take any more of your time. And I really, I really do appreciate you taking this call. And uh, as I talked a lot with Amy about, uh, you know, the current state of mute and, um, and getting, reading through your book and through David's book, um, I'm, I'm really just in awe that I, I had a chance to talk to you today. So thank you so much for that time. It's a pleasure. I hope it goes well. I, I just want to ask you, our listeners are owners of record labels and some who are thinking about starting a record label, some who've been running a record label for the past five or 10 years. Do you have any advice for them? Is there something you would have wished you could have told yourself back in, in 1978? Well, that's a bit difficult because I didn't really think I was starting a record label at that point. <laughs> right. I was just putting out a record. Right. That's um, true. I mean, I think the, the thing that you, you know, especially now, uh, well, well, I don't know about especially now, but definitely at any time when you're starting as an independent record label, you have to have absolute commitment and passion mm. for it. I mean, I, you know, I had a job which was a, a, not a bad job before I did it, but I hated it. Right. I didn't want to go back there. <laughs> and I, so when I started, I didn't really have anywhere else to go, you know? Mm. And so I had to do it in a way. And if I think having to do it as well as having the passion to do it, it makes a big difference. If you've always, if you always think, well, I could go back and be a doctor or a lawyer or a truck driver or whatever it is that you did before. It's a bit too much of a, I think I like the, I like, I don't like, uh, I don't like safety nets. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thought. Well, I appreciate yeah, it. But I mean, otherwise, you know, other advice is be good to your artists, pay them on time. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, be honest with them. Yeah. And you know what? That's that's something that people early on, when working with you, um, when 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 other bands had opportunities to go elsewhere to major labels, that people worked with you because they saw something, they saw your honesty and uh, your integrity. That that's something that I've been reading. Well, I mean, we were, I was very fortunate to work with artists 
who uh, we were able to who we were able to work with for many many years over a long career, and that's that's been a real privilege for me and a pleasure. That's a t- oh, not pleasure whole time, but you know, mostly <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. For, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. And here's the rest of our Mute Records episode with Amy Spencer. You know, it's interesting because the history of Mute for, you know, 40 years, and it's, it, I imagine uh, an office place where everyone's just standing around and, and talking about Moby and talking about, um, you know, all these like Nick Cave and all these iconic bands. But the reality is there's still things happening today. Releases are still coming out. There's obviously an excitement for what's happening at Mute in 2019 and in 2018 and mm-hmm. 2020. So can you talk a little bit about that, about you know uh, what it's like to work at such an iconic label, but still have the responsibility to break new acts and to discover new music? Yeah, I mean, there's a big history. When I started, it was kind of overwhelming. Um, I mean, Daniel is like historical in himself because right. he, yeah, I mean, he, he was like one of the first, re- he was the first release on mute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, but yeah, I guess there is a, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot, it's a tricky question. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the new art, Daniel's really forward thinking and likes to, I don't know, pick, he doesn't really follow like a trend. He kind of just like likes what he likes. And I think that's kind of why Mute has managed to sustain itself and be this cool label and stay, I don't know, keep the same image. Mm-hmm. Um, and the artists we're signing now, are maybe they're current, but also it's just what Daniel likes and what the A&R team really love. And yeah, and artists that we get along with too. And they're all kind of crazy and weird and we love them for that. And it kind of, yeah, it makes mute mute. Is that kind of answering the question? Yeah, no. And I'm, and I'm curious, definitely. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, like, uh, there there's, um, I'm curious about projects that you're working on right now that, um, that you're excited about or, or something that you've worked on in the past year. Like, um, I, I just think that it is, is it, uh, are some of the newer artists at risk of, of being overlooked because of, you know, new order and <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that that is definitely something you not struggled with, but kind of had to, had to, th- has to think about a lot because often when you post something on Instagram, for example, you'll end up if, if it's a new artist, you might get X amount of releases, um, sorry, not releases, X amount of um, likes. But when you um, post something about New Order or Depeche Mode, <laughs> you're probably going to get at least double that. <laughs> right. So that's a bit frustrating, but I think it's just about finding, constantly finding a new audience as well as keeping old older audience or the old audience. And yeah, um, but yeah, new stuff we've been working on. There's, I mean, there's, such a big variety the um last year we put out um so we put out chris carter for example who is a member of throwing gristle so quite a legendary artist and he put out a new new record so that and that did really well and it's still the campaign is still kind of going and we released it last march wow so so yeah the artists like that it, we, we kind of lay the foundation for 
an old, like a legacy artist to then come and release new material. Mm. But then we also had Daniel Bloomberg in May, I think, releasing a debut record and that did really well. And he got Rough Trade out, um, number six, I think he was in mm. the album chart. Wow. And yeah, so they're, they're kind of different different artists and then this year we have um apparat which is really different to both of those um he is like coming off the back of moderate stuff and the record will probably be out before this podcast okay released okay Um, but yeah we kind of just announced that like a couple of weeks ago and we had a great reaction to that and then yeah we've got loads of different stuff coming up and but we have also got um like the catalog reissues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a certain ratio releasing um, a rarities box set with like 55 tracks on like a seven um, vinyl box set. So wow. yeah, we're doing, doing all kinds of stuff. Do you like working old... on those on legacy projects like that? Yeah. It's funny with a certain ratio. I didn't really know them before I started. Um, but yeah, it's really been really fun. We haven't, we've put out so many vinyl by them. And mm-hmm. I think we've done, since I started, we must have done over over 10 reissues. And then we did a compilation with them in October, I think. And then we're doing the box set this year because it's their 40th anniversary. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's been really nice working with them. They're really fun. And yeah, and there's like Mark Stewart and these like really interesting characters and quite different styles really right um so yeah i really like working with them and i love like delving into the history of them but it's also great working with new artists and see seeing how they can develop and right kind of marketing those records as well yeah and i I think that's probably a good diversity to have um that keeps you probably entertained it just kind of keeps you exciting (laughs) you know like the that uh, that good it's a good analogy about like instagram and and how you know it's so rewarding probably to to release a reissue because you have so many fans from so many decades that that will all be excited about it but um to that feeling of breaking a new artist uh is probably even more so rewarding yeah definitely so what's your role at at mute i want to ask about you a little bit so i am assisting basically everyone there okay (laughs) Um, we're quite we're quite a small team so oh really in the record label we are seven um and that's including daniel that's including daniel oh my goodness that's incredible yeah i think the label is downsized and kind of i was picturing like two floors of an office of like (laughs) 200 people yeah um, wow maybe it once was we have um (laughs) We work like this as the label, but we have a lot of people kind of helping right. on the okay. outside as well. So okay. we have we have PF who we work with closely for marketing and distributing the record, and then we have a radio team and we have press. So yeah, there's there's a big there's a big team around us, and then we have the publishing downstairs, Mute Song. Mm. So yeah, um, but there's so there's seven of us, and I assist. Uh, marketing, art and production, and A&R. And then I do bits of digital stuff. And then I kind of do even the stuff like posting things and, right. I don't know, mail outs, things like that. Yeah. So yeah, pretty much everything I've learned 
a hell of a lot this year. Um, what, what do you like yeah. to work on? What kind, like what is the responsibility around a release that is is most um, energizing to you? Um, I definitely enjoy like the marketing and planning at the campaign. Mm. I guess I've never done it myself, but it's been great to kind of oversee these and and have input on. I don't know these decisions and I don't know where you think it might be good for an artist to play their live show in London or mm. this kind of stuff, slightly more creative things. Um, and then, I mean, I'm doing all the very annoying admin stuff too, like setting metadata off, but I mean, it's still nice to just <laughs> right. be involved in the, the whole process. And, yeah. yeah. And, and see, just seeing an artist develop has been really nice. So, yeah. And how many, how many different branches, sorry, I'm going off in all directions here, but uh, how many different branches to the label? You said that there's publishing. Um, I see on your website, there's like a recording studio with like a bunch of vintage gear and, (laughs) and then you have, um, which is really cool. And then you were talking also about another label, like a kind of like a, a sister label or a daughter label or something, but how many different like entities are surround that, that kind of the mute brand? So yeah, so we have Mute Song, the publisher, and they have lots and lots of artists. Some okay. cross over mm-hmm. to Mute and some don't. Oh, okay. Um, but a lot do. Um, so yeah, there's like five of them down there. <laughs> and then <laughs> we cross over a lot. Um, and then we have a studio downstairs um, and artists can kind of come in and use it. We have an in-house engineer wow. who is there quite a lot. But She's mainly doing, she kind of used the studio for her own stuff, but whenever we kind of need something, she's called Francine, <laughs> and she'll be used um, for various like, edits and mixes and stuff like that. That's really so, handy to have. Yeah. Um, the person who used to be there was called Marta Salogni, and she is doing really well. And yeah, I'm, she is like a really inspiring mixing engineer now who's kind of moved on to be in a studio with David Wrench. So hmm. yeah. And yeah, it's definitely um, a really nice place to work and there's lots and lots of gear. Um, most of it is Daniel's. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bet. I bet. I don't. Yeah. He uses it sometimes. He's not, not in the office so much. Right. But, yeah. and, and is that like handy for like, do you guys master your records down there or like work on reissues and stuff like that? Yeah. A lot of, not really mastering. We use um different mastering houses okay. but we francine will mix um quite a few of the records down there or people um might come to do like bits of mixing but it, it really varies to be honest mm. we, we i guess mute's kind of quite old school in the sense that it still uses like i mean we use like abbey road for mixing and mastering <laughs> and stuff like that um i'm not sure other labels use that yeah. anymore. <laughs> no. so yeah i've never used abbey road for mixing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just regular people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, how close is Abbey Road to you? Not, yeah, pretty close. Not, oh, not too far. That's Closer cool. than it is to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. And I think that's, I mean, that's actually the, the idea of a studio. I find it fascinating because it is kind of a little bit more um, traditional um, for like old, you know, older, older record labels. So it was the whole idea of recording music and then releasing it yourself. So I think not that, you know, budget is a huge 
issue for you guys maybe, but it probably saves a bit of money to be able to do mixed revisions and for artists to be able to use it as opposed to having to shell out money to go somewhere else. So it's probably a great resource. Yeah, it really is. I think that was that's always the incentive. And if you um, look back on Mute's history, they used to be in a place called Harrow Road, which is pretty close to our office now which was a much bigger office with a big studio. Hmm. And I think that used to have a live room, so they would actually record records in there. I oh, think. wow. Um, and then when we moved to Hammersmith, they did have a slightly bigger studio, but now it's kind of downsized. But it's still pretty decent. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say you can record a band in there, but you can definitely do like some, I don't know, extra bits on the record. And right. you could you can you can do stuff there. It depends on this on the the genre, I guess, sure, yeah. what you're trying to do. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's great. That's really cool. And so what other, okay, so you have publishing, you have studio. Um, what yeah, other kind of branches? A, we have, the only other thing really is we have a sub-label called Novamute, which is um, kind of a label that kind of used to be around. I'm not entirely sure when that started, but it kind of phased out and then, We've now relaunched it. I think it relaunched in 2017. Oh, okay. Um, so we just put out 12 inches, usually like an EP of mostly techno. Oh, um, I see. Okay. So, so it's genre specific? Different. Yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, it's a very specific st- sounding techno, basically. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And Daniel is quite heavily influenced by that kind of music. Right. So that's an area he wants to wanted to revisit. Um and yeah, so there's artists like Nicholas Bugayev, who's a new artist, and Terence Fixmer who has been around for a while, and then up and coming artists like Anna and Charlotte DeWitte. So yeah, mm. some really nice stuff. And then there's some new releases coming this year. Um but yeah, they basically we put them out in twelve inch vinyl, quite limited edition. Run. Oh, cool! And then, yeah, and then they go up digitally after after they've kind of sold out. I actually so, think yeah. I, I was talking to someone about something similar to this, and I can't remember now, but I think it might be Ghostly who has like a similar sub label that oh, nice. does the same thing, just kind of limited edition vinyl. I think it was Ghostly. Anyway, yeah, I think it works well for this kind of this definitely. style of music. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. And what what um, how do you decide where a, an artist goes to to Nova or to you know the parent label? I think because Nova Mute is so specific in genre, I think it would. Yeah, I mean, it's actually funny because we released a record by Chris Liebing, who's a big techno DJ, big quite big in Europe, and mm-hmm. he has known Daniel for a while, but he's never actually released on Novamute. He's always, um, yeah, he, he's always wanted, I think he always wanted to be, to release on mute, but he actually wrote a record that was much more fitting to mute. And I don't know, it had much more of a, I don't know, slower sound and hmm. it's still electronic, but it, it definitely wouldn't have fit on Novamute. So that's kind of interesting. Oh, cool. But okay. I mean, he could definitely play at a Novamute show. Right. Um, yeah, so that's 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 but yeah, most most artists would go to mute is very specific to be honest. I don't know if um Nova Mute would ever branch out further than than the techno. Music. Right, right. Well, I think uh, a genre specific label, especially like a small sub label or or boutique label, I think that's such a cool thing. As a music yeah. fan, I I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I really like it. And is yeah, it the really same like- team? Is it you guys? You seven? Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we're doing That's quite funny. a lot. Yeah, That's I think um, Paul A. Taylor, who works in art and production, is is struggling sometimes to get right. all the art, yeah. <laughs> do all the art because it's it's crazy to be honest. And and every, everyone is doing a lot, but um, yeah, I'd kind of like to spend a bit more time focusing on Novamute because I think it's some, we sometimes forget how we have so much to do with mute and then you, you don't want to let like forget about that part of the, of the company as well. Right. Yeah. No, um, I imagine. But yeah, some exciting stuff coming. We're just trying to grow that label and, and potentially it will, it will keep growing and we'll need more people. But for now it's just, it's, it's there's not enough releases to make it, um, yeah. To yeah. Have more people doing. No, that's so, yeah. fair. Uh, how did, let's go back to you. How did you come to be at mute? What's your story? It's such a cliche. I am. Uh, I studied music at Goldsmiths in London, and then was doing my own music quite a lot. But it kind of found that I wasn't really getting anywhere with it. So mm. I wanted just to meet people in music, and I really liked working in. I, I kind of like the idea of working in the music industry as well as kind of performing in it. Um, Why? So, and I, what? What was thought, that? Well, well, I used to do just like a part-time job um, as a nanny, which wasn't particularly <laughs> exciting whilst trying to be a musician. Right. I think I found it wasn't that inspiring. And even though I had a bunch of musician friends, I f- thought that maybe meeting new people on the other side of the industry mm. would kind of benefit me. Um, but actually it turned into be something that I really love doing. And, I, and I'm still doing music, but I think I actually do more. Now I'm surrounded by so many like inspiring people mm. and artists and, yeah, and just listening to so much music all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I so I basically got a job in um, the reception at PS, which is the distributor. Okay. That we work with, um, and that's where I met Mute because Mute come in for meetings every every two weeks. Oh, or so. wow! So, yeah, okay. We and then they had this job going, and that's that's it really. So I haven't I haven't been in the music industry for such a long time on on this side of things anyway. But um, I've been involved with music for quite a long time, so yeah, that's, that's a, the story. That's and it's it's interesting. You said it's cliche, and it is, but it's it's funny because I've heard that story a lot, and it and yeah. and I think like in the, if you think about you know in the movies, like if somebody wants to work like a record label, they start in the mailroom, and and it's like that's like a a cliche joke, but I've actually heard it work a few times. Now it kind of makes me think like mm-hmm. if I'm like if I ever come back in, into another life as like a 15 year old 16 year old i'm gonna go work at a record label in the mailroom because it does work <laughs> definitely does it's just so competitive and if you even if you have the experience to do i don't know to be a project manager but you you don't actually i mean you don't you haven't worked in the music industry you just you just have i don't know i know you're bright enough to do it but you haven't had that experience of being in the music industry then you're not going to get the job you need to kind of start at the bottom mm. in most cases and just kind of absorb the music and I mean I I learned I I got so many records when I was at PS and Mm. that was a really good foundation and then yeah it it just yeah it's just competitive and that's the way it is but yeah I recommend working in the the mailroom and and the other thing I like what you said too is like and I totally I totally get where you're coming from is if for for musicians I'm a musician too and I think Mm -hmm. for anyone who's um, struggling to, you know, um, ha- make a full-time income out of music, which is 
like 99% of musicians, um, you don't want to have to step out of that world and go and work on a farm or work in a coffee yeah. shop or nanny. I think that there's, to be able to stay in that zone, even if it's supporting other artists by working PR or marketing or something, I totally agree with that. I, yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's definitely helped me. And yeah, just every day when I'm, I don't know, listening to new music, that will inspire me. Or well, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's been great. Definitely, it was a good move for me. Um, and yeah. and what is it about it that that made you want to stay doing it? Because you know you were doing it as as a way to kind of help offset the the your income as a musician. But what what was the tipping point for you to say this is I'm going to take this more seriously and I and I like being on the business side of things? Oh, it's tricky. I mean, it still hasn't been so long, but I think that I'm I think I'm just good at doing this kind of organizational role within music. And I think that I'll always be able to do both and I'll never have to choose. I think that kind of made me realize actually I can do both and I don't need to worry about doing just like right. a coffee shop job. I think, right. I think it's, it's fine if you're organized and you can kind of manage your time and you can, you can definitely do it. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm not doing, I mean, maybe if I was running a record label, that would be a different story. Right. Right. But right. Ra- right now it's working so yeah that's that was kind of my that reassures me i think so you're a a musician what kind of music did you do you play um i've been in several bands but varied from like a a lot of like electronic um top lining stuff okay and that more like piano um guitar vocal Okay. It's really hard. Sure. I get that. You know, is this like, yeah. Is it, is it, um, is this like your secret long game of, of getting signed by mute is just to start. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to try to sign yourself one day? You are, aren't you? (laughs) No, no. I don't think so. I don't think it works like that. (laughs) I think, I don't think, um, yeah. Daniel doesn't work that way. I mean, who knows? But I don't. There's def, <laughs> definitely not. There definitely wasn't the goal. Um, but it's, it, it's definitely helped me to become a better musician being here. So really, that, that's yeah, definitely. How has that helped um, your? Like, how has that made you wiser? Uh, and and what what kind of advice would you give for like artists, you know, up and coming who are looking to get signed, maybe, or or trying to run their own career? Yeah, um, I think. I think getting a record deal is a good thing. I think being surrounded, for me, being surrounded by the label has only helped me. Um, and I've kind of seen that, I think at first, when I don't know, when you're younger, maybe you think you can self-release. And in today's world, you, you can actually self-release anything, but it doesn't really work that well, in my opinion, because mm. everything just gets lost. Mm-hmm. Unless you have... You really, you really do need the platform of a label, or you, or you need a lot of money. It's really tough, but I think, I think you can, I think, it, I think you can get signed if you're good enough. You will. Mm. You just need to keep pushing it. I mean, I know it's easier said than done, but I think you just need to either be in the right place at the right time, <laughs> or you need to keep pushing and pushing. And um, but I, I definitely think from working in labels, I don't think they're always as bad as they can be portrayed to the artist. Right. Um, I think probably because I've worked at Mute, which is such an artist-led label. Mm. Um, literally, what? the artists will make 
I mean, most of the decisions, which is really? quite crazy compared to, yeah. Like, what does that mean, artist-led? Like, what kind of decisions would they make? Well, they will have pretty much all control of their aesthetic. Hmm. They will, I mean, they'll work closely with the A&R on the, on the audio, but they will pretty much be able to present their album to us and we will put it out because ultimately we signed them so we made that deal with them wow. and we're going to support them and i mean some stuff on mute because most if you look at mute a lot of artists have stayed with mute over the over the years and they haven't left hmm. um because they build a relationship with us because we are artist-led and we allow the artists to just be themselves and we don't make them make decisions they mm. didn't want to make right uh, I, I think that's that's what daniel's always tried to do and it, and it and it does work and it's and maybe it sometimes doesn't work because i guess when you have an artist in in a record label and they're saying to you i don't want to do i don't want to put my single out this day but actually if you don't put it out then then i mean you know it, it's just sometimes it can maybe go wrong because they they shouldn't always make the decision when they mm. haven't spent 20 years working in marketing right but at the right. same time if they don't want to then we're not going to do that because so yeah, it's, it's about balance. That's really cool. Yeah, but usually it works, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's so smart. I mean, it's so obvious that you signed the band. So why wouldn't you let them make artistic decisions? Yeah. That's really it's interesting. Basically, it's about them being the artist and us being the label. And we can facilitate their like artistic needs. And yeah, I think it's really nice. That's great. And I, I had read that about you guys and I was kind of curious as to, as to what that kind of means. Um, can you talk about the 40th anniversary? Cause 1978 is, is the year, right? That it, that, that Daniel formed yeah. it. What, um, ha, have you celebrated the 40th or are you in the midst of that or what went down yeah. with that? A lot to say. <laughs> 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 yeah. So the fourth, well, for, for start Daniel and, Everyone at Mute decided that we don't want to call it a 40th anniversary. Okay. Sorry. Um, so, no, no, no. <laughs> Just letting you know. <laughs> so, it's we, we called it um, Mute 4.0 and the tagline is 1978 until tomorrow. So, it's kind oh, of, wow. rather than looking back and kind of reflecting on what we have done, it's kind of thinking, oh, well, this is the next chapter. Let's keep looking forward. Mm-hmm. Which is which is really nice. Um, so yeah, the, one of the first, one of the main main events we did was at Rough Trade East in October, and that was with um, so we had Chris Carter, Lost Under Heaven, and a certain ratio playing, and then we had DJ sets from Mac, Maps and mm. sound like kind of soundscapey things okay. from Simon Fisher Turner, and it was I don't know if anyone realised at the time, but I kind of looked back and thought that this was actually nice because all these artists are relatively new to me, or at least they put out records last year. We're going to put records out. Mm. And that's kind of nice that we didn't invite lots of older artists to to play. It was really cool. I thought, so basically we had lots of like old mute fans coming down, but some new people coming and everyone wore mute t-shirts. And we've been doing a reissue campaign. Um, We started uh, in October last year. And we had all of those like up on the wall. So we uh, put out Apparat, Josh D. Pearson, and then Silicon Teens, which is Daniel's one of Daniel's projects from the 80s, I think. Oh, early, okay. Late, late 70s. And Fad Gadget, VCMG. So you had 
there's been there's been a lot of stuff going on um and then we've also been doing uh, this thing called pitch black playback which is where you listen to an album in the dark i don't know if you've heard of that <laughs> no <laughs> yeah so we're doing like a series of them so the first one was yazoo upstairs at eric's and then i think last month was moby's play and oh, then wow. i think next month or the end of this month is going to be nick cave and the bad seeds murder ballads Oh, wow. um, so you basically just sit there and they give you a blindfold and you listen to the entire record. That's really cool. Is, yeah, quite amazing. It's like those um, uh, restaurants for in the dark, you know? Oh, really? Uh, I, think, I think that's the thing. I don't know. I saw it on TV. <laughs> you, like, I'll have to meal. tell you about that. That's our next. That's the, the 50th. <laughs> yeah, 50th. <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, have you done that? Yeah. Have you been to one of them? Like, No, I need. To, we need to go to one. I don't know why. It's been. There's been so much going on. Um, right. Yeah, maybe we'll go to the Nick Cave one. But yeah, it sounds amazing. I so, yeah. I uh, just listened to, um, after I was reading this book about, uh, that was talking about Mute and Moby, I, mm -hmm. I put on play again. And um, and I don't think I had, to be honest with you, I don't think I had listened to it since high school. When I did listen mm -hmm. to it a ton in high school. And, yeah. um, and it's just interesting to like, go back to some of these records that you, that, for me as a kid, it was just about, you know, radio music, pop music and music you heard on TV commercials, but mm -hmm. to actually sit back and listen to play as a artistic record, I was like, man, this is a beautiful record. Like this could come yeah. out today and people would think it's amazing. That's so true. Yeah. I love that. I, I, yeah. I love that record. Um, mm -hmm. I forgot to um, mention that we, the kind of biggest part of 4.0 and probably the strangest part. <laughs> is that um, we're putting out a compilation record basically with all artists that wanted to be involved who have ever been on mute. Um, so basically we decided that we were, it was the idea of Simon Fisher-Turner, who's an artist on mute, mm -hmm. um, to basically get all the artists who interpret John Cage's 433 silence piece. Oh, okay. <laughs> so basically all the artists have sent us four minutes 33 of silence and <laughs> is their interpretation of silence so right not all of them are actually yeah. none of them are really silent yeah and oh, yeah we man. we put so there's like nearly 60 tracks worth of <laughs> silence <laughs> that's and amazing yeah, we do, yeah and we're doing that for charity and which is the british tinnitus association and help musicians uk and yeah it's amazing. kind of to it's to honor this um uh, a member of in spiral carpets called craig gill who suffered from like anxiety and depression as mm. a result of his tinnitus so it was kind of like a nice way to i don't know honor him but also to honor mute in the most ridiculous way we could basically right. and <laughs> so yeah that's amazing and who who contributed to that so um every, pretty much everyone I mean, there's still a few that didn't, but yeah, even Depeche Mode on there, Golf wow. Rap, wow. Erasure, Daniel. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's amazing that there's literally the, the newest newest artists on there as well as the eldest. Um, You're right. Yeah, I mean, so many. But yeah, th this is announced. So um, yeah, there's, and it went down really well. People, kind of people reacting in all kinds of ways, as you mm -hmm. can imagine. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep an yeah. eye out for that. That's that yeah. is really cool. <laughs> Um, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, something that came up on, um, 
this was a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, your book came up on my feed, and I think mm. it was from like a, I think it was actually from like a design blog or something. But it was like kind of promoting that. But you, you guys, is that is that like book of of artwork and everything? The big orange book is that part of the four campaign? I have it in front of me. Um, oh. No, it was. Um, <laughs> it it was. I think it was out just before, so it came out at the end of 2017. Um, and it, I mean, I guess maybe it was part of the incentive, but because the title has 1978 to tomorrow as well. Right. Um, but yeah, it's basically, a, a, like it says, a visual document of mute over the years. Um, Is that something you guys a, put out? Yeah, so okay. Paul A. Taylor, who does... We Faber put it out. They published it, wow. um, but Paul Lay Taylor and Daniel Miller put it together, and also along with Terry Burrows, who is the author. And yeah, it's amazing. I have to get a copy it's, of that. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's mostly just artwork and photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, ha- it has some. I mean, it has key information. It, it's really beautiful. You yeah. know, I I'm trying to think of where I first saw that because it wasn't. Um, it was actually before we were talking, and it was probably one of the reasons that I I thought to email you, but um, I can't for the life of remember. It must have been in a bookstore or something, but it was I think yeah. it was in cellophane, so I couldn't look at, look at it. But <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, it that is really cool. I love whenever, and I mean, you guys have a synthesizer as well, like, uh, like <laughs> in your in your store. But like, I think that is so cool when when labels kind of go beyond into the physical world a little bit mm-hmm. yeah we definitely like we, we've mentioned a bit before but i think it's been always quite important to keep an aesthetic as well as i mean mm-hmm. just thinking about the music i think keeping the image it's happened quite naturally i think but making sure that the image is kind of there and stayed the same and i think it kind of shows in the art in the in the book of art really how mm. like the image has been pretty constant throughout um, yeah, that's amazing. What um, I'm curious, kind of going back to you a little bit in in um, a, a label. There's seven people, but um, in my mind, I'm still picturing 200 people in this big <laughs> corporate office. But whatever, I'll trust you. Um, so, do you do you feel that your perspective as as a young person is valued at the label at, at a 40 year old label? Yeah, I think so. And that's quite an interesting question. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it is really valued. And I think in in this time, it, I think things are changing so much with music and with, with things like streaming and stuff, but it was asked about this kind of thing and the way we absorb music and um, I don't know what kind of music we're listening to because it's difficult because the A&Rs uh, mute have been there for a long time as well. So mm. it's just trying to... And and because we're trying to stay, um, I kind of keep mute as genuine and authentic as we can. At the same time, we're still trying to survive as a label. So it's right. just kind of understanding what I don't know young people want now, as well as like slightly older people and the fans of mute for years want. So it's kind of just getting that balance really. So yeah, mm. they de- we definitely are valued, and because we're such a small team, everyone kind of feels on the same level. It doesn't feel like. It feels like we we definitely do have our own say and our own voice. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. Really nice. Yeah, I mean Daniel's always asking 
asking what we think about stuff, which is amazing. Well, and it's so, so yeah. I think it's valuable because I think the way that you can consume music is probably different or the way that your peers consume music is different than how Daniel would consume music. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder. I mean, Daniel's DJing a lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he probably he's probably, tons he's of probably music. pretty hip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I, I, there, you touched on something, and I want to. I want to ask you. Like, is um, is it challenging or is it a blessing that your audience, um, some of your audience may have been there from the very beginning, and some of your audience may be quite young high schoolers and are discovering your music. Is that a challenge um, to have such a diverse audience, or is that a good thing? Yeah, I think we're still quite stuck with on. Um, hardcore mute fans from years ago, which is great, <laughs> yeah, which is amazing, sure. and, and not and maybe not many labels have that. So it's right. that's really cool. We just still, like I said earlier, just trying to figure out sometimes how to put out and market the new the newer stuff to these people because the sound maybe has changed slightly in new signings and is always changing. Um, it's not like we're putting, we've put out like a hundred Depeche modes or, <laughs> or I don't know, lots of, it, yeah, it's yeah. changing a lot. So, yeah. yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, I think that it's been, it's really good to have this kind of, I, I don't know, divided group of fans mm-hmm. rather than just lots of young people. I think it's, it's really nice and rare. So yeah, yeah it, it's just, it's just, it's definitely a challenge, but I think it, it can work in our favor. We just need to figure out in terms of streaming and things like that how to yeah how to balance that and push that more but we in terms of like physical sales that would definitely work in our favor so right that's it's kind true. of so yeah, yeah it, it's it's kind of a complicated one but yeah what's your outlook on the, on the music industry i mean you're coming into it now and 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 uh how, how do you think do you think it's in in good shape do you think there's uh areas that need to improve yeah, so that's such a tricky one. Um, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely like a big push towards streaming, which can be like a really good thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's definitely working for the really big artists, which I guess, yeah, mate on the majors really. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a struggle for for some artists on you, I guess, because we have a lot of niche stuff, right? Um, right. Which we we love, but I, I think it's important to work closely with our artists and just see how we can like utilize streaming platforms and I don't know this kind of new way of um, absorbing music and like listening to music, Mm -hmm. but like also make sure we don't get like too bogged down in like these algorithms (laughs) and I kind of instead just like tailor, yeah, tailor the release to the artists really. And like tailor like each campaign um, and kind of, cause we we can definitely get too bogged down in just, I don't know, Spotify playlists. Right, right. Yeah. I guess it's just tricky because we need to figure out how we can make generate money for the artists and for us and but at the same time not um kind of change the artist the music the artist is making anyway we just want we want to yeah so it it would be great if we if the music industry could kind of keep pushing the like physical sales because mm. and then and hopefully vinyl and things are still making a comeback mm-hmm. and Mm-hmm. That that's the plan, but yeah, it's it's tricky. I yeah, and I think that I mean, you look at streaming and vinyl; they're on completely ends of the spectrum. And mm-hmm. but I hope they can complement each other because I know for for my lifestyle, they 
they both serve a really important purpose and the, the yeah. convenience and portability of streaming and then the intimacy of, of physical, you know, cassettes and, and vinyl. Um, and I, I, you know, even just the, the merch section on Spotify, if that can be a little mm -hmm. bit more elaborate and a little bit more user-friendly. Um, yeah, I think that could be a really cool balance. Yeah, hopefully the streaming platforms will realize that they can work with labels in that way and, I don't know, yeah, make the merch bar on Spotify even, like you say, a bigger thing and, I don't know, yeah, push the live side on Spotify as well. Kind of making everything linked together would be, and work together mm -hmm. even better would mm -hmm. be, would, I think it would benefit everyone. For sure. Um, but yeah, that is, is tricky with the physical side. Um, and it's funny because, uh, I mean, I'm surrounded by people who buy vinyl and CD, well, CD a bit less, but still they buy physical um, music all the time. But I don't know whether that's just my bubble and whether actually, yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that m most of the country isn't buying vinyl and they're just streaming and they pay yeah, 10 pounds a month fair. to to listen to music instead of, Twenty pound per record. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, we uh, I, one of the questions I, I, I did an interview just recently with Taylor Dupree of Twelve K Records, and I mean Twelve K is kind of similar to Mute. There, there a lot of experimental and instrumental stuff. I'm curious mm -hmm. about that genre and, and streaming. And I asked Taylor about this, and I want to ask you about this. Like, I, in my opinion, I think that streaming really complements electronic music and, and uh, ambient music because um, I, I just feel like it's something that you can really dive into. And a lot of these artists are quite prolific and have big discographies and there's labels like, um, like you guys or Erase Tapes that have such a deep catalog of similar artists that I found mm -hmm. that I've really gotten into ambient and electronic music because of the smorgasbord of, of iTunes and, or of Apple Music and, and Spotify. Do you, do you find That's that at all? I can see what you mean, like kind of jumping from artist to artist mm -hmm. on that kind of platform. Yeah. For me, I, I agree with you. It's introduced me to lots of different artists and through like the release radar and all the different playlists with the algorithms. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely it can like introduce you to a bunch of new artists. Um, and it's really good for artists... Um, who can fit into those more ambient playlists. Yeah. Like we, we have like Jan Tiersen, um coming out tomorrow and that's like um, very beautiful piano focused music mm. and it fits into a ton of playlists on Spotify. And so this kind of music can really work because it, it fits into like relax podcast or uh, sorry, not podcast, yeah. um, playlist. Playlist, or, yeah. Like study yeah. And, and sleep exactly. and yoga. Yeah. Yeah, um, but then we also have, I don't know, artists who've written tracks which are like 10 minutes long and it's like, I don't know, so noisy and that, that doesn't fit into a playlist. So <laughs> right. it's just figuring out. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's great, but it doesn't necessarily work on, on a streaming platform. And, it, and if it's it, a lot of tracks, if they're, if they're more than, I don't know, four minutes, then they're not going to even get onto the playlist. So, oh, yeah, man. There, there's, some, there's some challenges that we just need to we need to work with but we yeah mm. interesting i i don't want to take up too much more of your time um but mm -hmm. what's what's coming out now like what what are we looking at uh, the spring of 2019 or the summer or the fall like what what are some projects and releases you're excited about so I've, i think i've touched on a few but um one artist who's really exciting is karine and she is an artist that's not been around for for too long but should we signed her and 
autumn and she is releasing her first record it's a comp it's sort of like a she's put out four eps so it's a mixture of the four eps plus a couple new tracks um and yeah it's beautiful it's kind Mm. of electronic with amazing vocal um and a really unique sound i think cool um so yeah there's that that comes uh, out kind of the end of march yeah exactly okay. um and the week before that we have apparat which is also in the same kind of vein and their um apparat has been around for longer and um is playing some amazing shows he's playing the barbican in uh end of april with karine as a support so oh, cool. it's really nice that some of the artists can kind of team up like that yeah and then and then we have uh jan tiersen coming out tomorrow which is is going to be amazing and it's be- it sounds i don't know like it's, it sounds, it's obviously very authentic, but it has like elements of Anastasia Ross, but it also has you know, the old Jan Tiersen sound of the just classic piano. Um, but yeah, so that's... I'll have to check that out. That's, and sorry, Jan Tiersen, that's Y-A-N-N space T-I-E-R-S-E-N. Is that right? Exactly, okay. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. He's amazing. Um, he, li- he lives on an island off of France in, in Brittany, and <laughs> uh, it's called Wesson, and... Yeah, basically 400 people live there and he has oh, a studio wow. there and a venue that he's built. Oh, he's man. like, yeah, if you can delve into Jan, he's I will. a very unique artist. I'm person, going to yeah. as soon as we hang up here. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and then there's Matt, there's Maps, which is an artist who's releasing his fourth record on mute. And that's um, with this uh, collective called the Echo Collective. And, hmm. and they're kind of like an ensemble of, um, yeah, strings and they yeah that that sounds amazing he's like a he used to be kind of like a bedroom producer and now has kind of opened up to this new world of wow. i don't know with lots more instruments it's such an amazing record for such beautiful songs so yeah there's so much stuff coming out and a lot of new stuff as well as i'm sure we're going to be doing a bunch of reissues this year um you've already got a bunch scheduled so yeah that's great keep an eye out (laughs) well thanks so much for doing this this has been a lot of fun and it's such an honor to talk to you and to talk to the label I, i really appreciate it yeah thanks so much and thank you for listening i want to give a huge shout out to amy spencer of mute first of all for responding to my original email and agreeing to do the podcast a few months ago and second of all for working so hard to get us that opportunity to talk with Daniel Miller which was such a cool experience and so thanks to Amy for doing the show and for facilitating so much um, to make the episode happen thank you for listening and please subscribe if you haven't already and check out mute by going to mute.com and deep diving into their catalog new and old